This evening, most of you know that a couple of weeks ago we began looking at chapter 7, and in doing so we finished up verse number uh, 20, uh, verse number 20 there of chapter 6, where uh, the writer began speaking of Christ uh, being after the order of Melchizedek, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so what the writer was communicating is the fact that Christ is after the same manner or after the same fashion, the same pattern of Melchizedek. And so as we made our way to chapter 7, the writer did everything he could to confront Jews on this truth that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. And as he made his case for the fact that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, then that meant that the priesthood of Christ was superior to the priesthood of the Levites. And so what I tried to remind us of two weeks ago was this, is that Christ is superior over all other forms of religion, all other forms of beliefs, all other forms of ideologies. And so Christ is superior. Then last week we looked in verse 18 and 19 and watched as the writer explained that with the coming of Christ there was a disannulling or an abolishment or a doing away with the former commandment or the former prescribed order of things. And he said the old system and the old law, the old covenant, he said it is now weak and unprofitable. Okay, so he said that the law, as good as it was and the purpose it served, it is now weak and it is incapable and it is useless in doing what needs to be done in the life of an individual. And so in verse number 19 he said, For the law made nothing perfect, which meant this, it did not bring about the complete spiritual need and uh, the, the spiritual transaction that was needed in that person's life. But the bringing in of a better hope did, that being Jesus Christ. And then he said, by which, or by the which, we draw nigh unto God. And so the writer was explaining that it is possible for a Christian, because of this better hope, this better covenant, this new order of things, it is possible for the child of God to have a near or close or intimate relationship with the Lord. But just because it is possible does not mean that everyone takes advantage of it. And so last week I tried to have us examine our own personal lives and our own walk with the Lord and ask ourselves this question, if I am saved, do I have a close relationship with the Lord? Am I walking with the Lord as I ought to be and as I could be? Because there are many people in today's culture, and I hate to sound like I'm just beating a dead horse, but there are so many people in today's culture that if they are saved... If they are saved, their relationship with God is not close. It is distant at best. And so that's where we left off last week in verse number 19. Tonight we're just going to consider a few more verses, and I hope that this will be a help to us. I know that it will be somewhat repetitive in nature, but I promise you we need the repetition in this regard. And so tonight I want us to think about something just to illustrate where the thoughts are going tonight, what we're going to be considering but I think every one of us know that over the years, things tend to change. There is nothing, it seems, that stays constant, that stays remaining, that stays unmovable. It seems as though everything is in a state of change. And I don't know about you, but it seems like, from my vantage point, so much of what is changing is not changing for the better it is changing for the worse. Now, that could be applied really in almost every area of life, 
that so many times, even with what seems to be an improvement, that there are so many drawbacks associated with it, you really have to ask yourself, have I really helped myself in what appears to be a change for the positive? And so things are constantly changing, things are constantly moving, things are constantly evolving and transforming into different things. And at the same time, it seems like this, that everything has a life cycle. Meaning, whatever it is, at some point it was birthed, and it lasts for some amount of time. Maybe it's carried on for a good number of years. But it's almost like everything that is at some point becomes no more. Its cycle of life has run and it dies and becomes obsolete. And so as you think about that, that things are constantly changing and things are constantly evolving, for lack of better words, most of the time, not for the positive, but rather for the negative. And then you consider the fact that so many things seem to have a life cycle where it seems to run its course and then it eventually becomes obsolete and dies. Whether we like to admit this or not, we're seeing the same thing happening in our churches. Churches are changing, and churches are trying to be trendy, and churches are trying to be cutting edge. And, and what so many churches like to say is this, is we're not changing the message, we're just changing the package. We're not changing the message, we're just changing the approach to, to make it more appealing and to make it more exciting, and, and that's what we're trying to do. And though I think many people believe that that's what they are doing, here is what I believe is happening in more churches than not, though probably unintentional in the beginning, that as they are changing the presentation, the message has also been changed. And so therefore, the change is not for the better. It is ultimately a change for the worse. And so here's what we see even in churches. These life cycles, these churches are birthed at whatever point, maybe 25, 50, maybe even 100 or more years ago. And if we're not careful, if churches are not careful, then here's what happens in an effort to stay relevant, in an effort to stay trendy, in, a relevant, in an effort to, to, to stay up with the times and, and not getting left in the dust, so to speak, they want to change things, and as they change things, rather than helping things, they hurt things. And at some point, it dies a natural death. And so what happens then is this. The message that needs to be proclaimed is no longer proclaimed at all, or it is no longer proclaimed as it should be and once was. And so tonight what we're going to consider is this. The message of Christ and the work of Christ is unchanging. 
Now, I know that we would sit here this evening and say, well, of course, that is so. Amen. Yeah, the work of Christ is unchanging. Absolutely, Brother Kyle. Who would question such a thing? Step outside of this church and see who would question such a thing. The unchanging nature and the unchanging work is constantly, the unchanging nature and the unchanging work of Christ is constantly being challenged in our day and in our time. And I want us to look at tonight's passage to just remind us that who Christ was 2,000 years ago is who Christ is today. And what Christ did 2,000 years ago is what he still desires to do today. But you and I cannot afford to lose sight of the unchanging nature and the unchanging work of Christ. So tonight, if you would, look in verse number 20. All this being a reference to Christ, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, he says in verse number 20, And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. Now what does this mean? Well, it means this, because I think you refer to this as a double negative in verse number 20, that he was not without an oath, which means he was with an oath. Okay? Now this is talking about the priesthood of Christ, and so what he says in verse number 20 is this, is that with the priesthood of Christ came with it an oath or a covenant or a process or a, a, a promise and this, we will see in just a moment, is opposite of the priesthood of the priest. Okay, so in verse number 20, he said that he did not come without an oath, which means that with Christ there was an oath or there was a promise. So what was the oath? What was the promise? Well, notice toward the middle of verse number 21, he said this, The Lord swear and will not repent. Okay? Now this is a quotation from Psalm 110 verse number 4. The writer of Hebrews chapter 7 is quoting the, the King David whenever David wrote these words, The Lord swear and will not repent. What does it mean to repent in this context? It means this, to change one's mind. Okay? And so the Lord has sworn, the Lord has made this promise, the Lord has made this covenant, this oath, and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest, how long after the order of Melchizedek? He said, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so what he says in verse number 21 is this, along with verse number 20, that with the oath that was given of Jesus Christ, he is going to be forever the priest after the order or after the pattern of Melchizedek. And so what we begin to see immediately then is this, is that the work of Christ and what he did, that is now established forever for all mankind. He said in the first part of verse number 21, he said, For those priests, being the Levitical priest, he said, Those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him. So here's what he is saying. He is saying this, 
The Levitical priesthood never came with a promise, never came with an oath, never came with a covenant that said that you will rule forever or that you will be used in this service forever. And so the priest, as wonderful of a position as they held, and for all the years that they served, and for all the people that they stood for the the people between them and God, for everything that was accomplished through them, There was never a promise by God that their priesthood would be established forever. And so the oath that was made, the promise that was made of Christ and his priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, that was forever. And so Christ was, or so the writer is saying of Christ to Jews who would have struggled with this. You might as well get this in your head. You might as well come to this conclusion in your heart that things changed when Christ came on the scene and things are forever different. We will never go back to the old system. We will never go back to the old law. And what Christ did while on earth, that is established now forever. We see in verse number 22 that the writer said this, By so much was Jesus made a surety or a guarantee of a better testament or a better covenant, a better system, okay? And so what he was saying is this, is that Jesus was the guarantee of something that was superior, something we've talked about now for two weeks. So is this clicking and making sense? Christ was superior over the Levitical priesthood because Melchizedek was superior over Abraham. So the, the, the incarnation of Christ was the guarantee of that which was better for, by, or, or a better testament or a better covenant or a better system of things. Now, look down in verse number 25 for just a moment. The better testament being in place, notice what the writer says. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now of Christ and his priesthood, which is superior over Melchizedek, Jesus who was the guarantee of the better covenant or the better testament, He said, you've got to understand this, Jews, my fellow countrymen. He said, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. What does it mean to save someone? It means to deliver them or to rescue them. So what does it mean to be able to save them? It means this, to be capable of doing such a thing. So he says Christ is a better testament, as a better covenant, as a better system by way of which we come to Christ. He says you need to understand something, that Christ is capable of saving someone, rescuing them, delivering them to the uttermost. What does it mean to do something to the uttermost? It means to do something completely and entirely. See, that was something that the priest of the Old Covenant could not do. 
the Old Testament priests, the ones who were a part of the Old Covenant, they could stand as an intercessor between the people and God. But there were only so many things that the priests were able to do. They could only push back the sin so far through the offerings and the sacrifices. Only so much could be done for the people by the hands of the priest. But the writer reminds them that with the superiority of who Christ is and the weakness and the unprofitableness of the old system that has now been abolished, he said, Christ, you must understand, is capable of saving people completely and entirely. Again, going back to the part in verse number 19, where the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. He is saying Christ is able to completely and entirely save someone from their sin. Something that the law could not do. He said in verse number 25, though that it comes when someone comes unto God by him. See, what Christ does is this. He gives the individual, he says, access to God through him because he said, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He ever liveth. That means back then he was alive, And he is saying to us tonight, he is still alive. And so what Christ was doing 2,000 years ago, he is still doing today. He is the one that people go through if they want to get to God. And it is when they go through Christ, Christ doing the intercession on their behalf, it is the work of Christ that is capable of saving them to the uttermost, completely and entirely. That is the work of Christ. But I want us to notice in verse number 23 what he says. Writing of the high priest, he says, And they truly were many priests. Isn't that the truth? I mean, think about this. From the time that the law was instituted for the children of Israel there in the wilderness back in the book of Exodus... From the time that that was implemented to the time we get to the birth of Christ and the work of Christ, there were many priests. How many priests were there? We don't begin to know. There would have been thousands and thousands of priests who served in different capacities. So notice what he said in verse number 23. And they truly were many priests. But here's why there were many priests. Because they were not suffered to continue. What does it mean to suffer? It means this, they were not allowed to continue. The work of those priests, as many as there were, they were not allowed to continue because of this problem they had. They kept dying off. See what he said? He said they were not suffered or allowed or or able to continue by reason of death. See, you'd have a priest come along and he might be a wonderful priest. He might be a fantastic high priest. He, He may have others who would serve in the priesthood with him. And as wonderful as their work was, as everything that they did, everything that they would accomplish on behalf of the people they represented and interceded for on their behalf to God, 
The problem that was so of every one of those priests was this, is they were made of flesh and bone just like the people they served, and their flesh caused them to die. So everything they did was partial in nature for their spiritual needs. So he writes of the priesthood of Christ. It's superior over Melchizedek. The old law is now weak. It is unprofitable. It's useless. It could not complete a person. It could not bring about the spiritual need in their life that was needed. Only the work of Christ could do that. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God by him or through him. The priests were good, but they were limited by the fact that they were men who were made up of flesh and died. So notice what he said in verse number 24. But this man, that being Christ, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Because he continueth ever, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Okay, do you get a theme here? Christ lives forever. Unlike the former priests, unlike the former high priests, unlike the ones that you would formerly go to and bring the offerings and the sacrifices to, unlike those who had a problem with death and they continued to follow in that pattern, you need to understand that this man is unchanging and his priesthood is unchanging. His work is unchanging because he, unlike all the others, continueth ever, Christ never dies. So therefore, to say what I've already said, but I want to say it one more time, the work of Christ has not changed in the last 2,000 years because Christ has not changed who he is in the last 2,000 years. So what Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago is the only thing that has been effective in bringing men and women to God in the last 2,000 years. The only thing that has been profitable now, the only thing that has had the strength or the power or the ability to bring men and women to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the only thing that has been effective in the last 2,000 years has been when people come to God through the work of Jesus Christ. Because Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, He lives and He lives forever, so therefore His work will live forever. Why do I need a reminder? of such a truth. And why do you need a reminder of such a truth? Well, here we go again. Because of where our world is at today. And how it is affecting churches that once believed that Christ and the work of Christ was the only effective means of getting people to a saving knowledge of Christ 
and a personal relationship with God. It has permeated the church so much. And, and, and I, I don't want to overgeneralize things. I really don't. But I, I'm telling you, we are living in a day where it has so permeated the mindset of the church that, that, you know, maybe it's not, or maybe I don't need to be so radical, maybe I don't need to be so narrow on this, that in a sense what it has also done, now please get this, in a sense what it has also done is it has dulled the senses of many people sitting in churches to have a burden for the spiritual conditions of people. Because what has happened now is this. We have gotten so used to terminology that is heretical in nature that someone may not even have a testimony of placing their faith in Christ for salvation, and yet we have still bought into the fact that that person must have a relationship with God, though they did it outside of Christ. And many people sitting in churches are comfortable with testimonies that are void of the work of Christ. So you hear someone and, and, and they say things like this, Well, you know, I, I got baptized. Who cares? The work of salvation has never hinged upon baptism. Well, I was confirmed at this age. I don't care what happened at this particular age. Well, you know, I, I just grew up in church. That's good that you grew up in church. But the only way that a person can be saved to the uttermost, to be saved completely and entirely, is through the eternal work of Jesus Christ. No man will make it to the Father but by Him. The Scripture is simply agreeing with one another. And you and I cannot lose sight of the fact that there is no other way in which man can be saved except through Christ. And we've become so weak. And we've become so casual in what we accept these days as testimonies of salvation. And friends, as this trend has been happening, I don't know how long, but as we're seeing the shifts, as, as we're seeing the changes taking place in our churches, we've got to understand something. The changes have not been for the better. They have been for the worse. I don't begin to know what the percentage or what the numbers would be of wheat versus tares within a church. Somebody says, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's a parable that Christ used to illustrate that there are those who give off the appearance of salvation, but whenever they 
come under the inspection of God, it'll be determined and revealed they were never truly saved. Though they associated with the wheat, though they associated with the believers, though they were in fellowship with them, though all these things were true of, of the tares, the ones that were not really wheat, it'll be determined on that day they weren't the real deal. And I'm telling you, our churches are becoming more and more infiltrated with the, the, the fakes, so to speak, because we're trying to be relevant, we're trying to be trendy, we don't want to lose touch, and so we're not altering the message, but more times than not, the message is being altered. And it's killing most churches. It's not that their doors are closing down, but it is killing the message that needs to be declared. Listen now, it is killing the message that needs to be declared, not just from the pulpit, but from the lips of every member of that church. See, the preacher is not the only one who is supposed to declare the unchanging work of Christ in a person's life. It is not just the preacher who is supposed to be telling people about the work of Christ and the fact that only those who go to God through Christ are saved to the uttermost. It is as much your responsibility as it is my responsibility to make the message known that only Christ can save. And any religious system outside of Christ, it is inferior and will not lead to genuine repentance and salvation. I want to remind us tonight that with everything in our culture that is changing, the message of Christ is not changing. Do we understand that? The message of Christ is not changing. Who God was through Christ and the work of Christ on this earth, though it transpired over 2,000 years ago, that message is not changing for anyone. And so it ought to remind us tonight to realize this. I don't have the right to try to change it. Are, are, are you hearing this? We've got people right now who are looking down and they're not really giving attention to the Word. I want us to listen to this. I don't have the right to change it. I do not have the right to try to alter what God established through Christ 2,000 years ago forever. And so someone comes along with the flimsy testimony. I don't have the right because of feelings and emotions and affection to change what the Word of God said to try to make myself and that person feel better about a testimony that is at best very weak. Does this make sense? 
The work of Christ is unchanging. So therefore, I don't have the right and I don't have the freedom and I don't have the liberty as a Christian to alter it for anyone as unpolitically correct as this message is going to continue to become in our nation. So when we hear preachers talking about unity, when we talk, when, when we hear fellow church people talking about unity and, and, you know, we're not going to let certain things divide and we're not going to let certain things keep us segregated. That all sounds good and all that sounds fine. But can I tell you what is being lost in most churches these days? It is a clear presentation of who Jesus is and his work and the work that only he can accomplish. And I'm telling you, if you and I do not stand guard against this, if you and I do not take a vigilant mental stand against the trend that has been sweeping our nation, I promise you at some point we will get swept up in it. And we will listen to people with their flimsy religious experiences. We will listen to people who say things like, well, you know, I have my own set of beliefs. And we will sit there and we will pander to it. And we will sit there and we'll squirm, but we won't say anything. Friends, we do not have the right to change what God established 2,000 years ago. This town desperately needs to hear the message of Christ. This town does not need to hear another message about tolerance. This message or this town does not need to hear another message about the fluffy kind of love that everyone just feels when they come into the house of God. Of course we need to show love, but you understand what I'm saying. Our town does not need to hear about more tolerance and more love and more acceptance and and more this and that and ooey and gooey and, and mush. What we as Christians need to be declaring is this. If you want a personal relationship with God that is close, and intimate, and what it can be, then the only way that you get that is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, I just don't feel that way. I, I, listen, I'm, I'm sorry. You and I probably ought to quit having this discussion then at this point because uh, you're not going to change me because I don't have the authority to change what God established 2,000 years ago. But I'm telling you, friends, we need a burden to proclaim the unchanging message that Christ and Christ alone is the only intercessor for a fallen man to a holy God. But if we don't remember that, we will lose the burden and we will become swept up in this change and I promise you it will kill what's been done in the past and the work that has been done in the past for the cause of Christ 
Will the church always exist in some form? Yes, I understand that. The gates of hell will not prevail. I understand. But I can promise you this. There are many churches who once preached a clear, a clear presentation of the gospel of Christ who today will almost accept anything because, well, you know, we don't want to judge or offend or whatever. His work is unchanging. We do not have the right to change it. And that ought to give us a genuine burden for those who are lost in sin. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening, Lord. I, I'm thankful that you are clear in your word that your work through Christ was unchanging. And God, it may be that there are some in here this evening and they wrestle with it from time to time because we have friends, we have loved ones, we have those that we care about who are not on the same page as us with their beliefs. And so there are times that we're tempted to sway just a little bit, to compromise just a little bit. And Lord, would you help us tonight to remember we do not have the right to change what you established forever. And would you help us to have a burden to let that be known whenever you would give us a chance, whenever you would give us opportunity. I pray that you'd help us tonight to be what we're supposed to be. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As Lauren plays, you